Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Professor Paul Milgram, Professor of Economics at Stanford University and 2020 recipient of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. The prize was awarded to him jointly with Robert Wilson for their work in the theory and practice of auctions. Today, we're going to talk about his book, Discovering Prices, Auction Design in Markets with Complex Constraints. Professor Milgram, thank you so much for coming to the show. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here, Peter. Good to talk to you again. I was very excited to learn that this is uh, your first ever podcast, so uh, I hope it'll uh, not be too scary, and I uh, really appreciate you uh, giving me this chance to to talk to you. Okay, okay I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's start off with uh, just some basics. Um, you know, most people think of auctions as you know, just kind of a funny way to sell livestock with some guy who talks really fast, or maybe it's something that happens for fine art in a hushed, quiet room, where if you sneeze at the wrong time, you might find out that you just purchased a Picasso for $2 million. But, you know, that seems like kind of an oddball fringes of the economic system. So, so why are auctions important enough to devote your career to studying them? Okay, so well, yeah, most people think about auctions, and they think very narrowly about the, the situation in which you have one thing that you're selling, and you sell it, and uh, just goes to the highest bidder, and what's what's so complicated about that? Um, the auctions that I have uh, mostly been working on and that we've been designing are situations where the, it's a much more complicated resource allocation problem. There might be several items for sale, and um, you only want item A if you can also get item B, uh, or they, there may be multiple items for sale, and and whether you want A or B depends on their relative prices, and you don't want them sold one at a time, uh, which would force you to guess about what the price of future items would be. So it's the interaction that um, uh, that is created the need for new designs that make it possible for people to bid for what they want to buy. So, so why is uh, why does it need a whole auction theory to be built around that? Um, you know, what is it that you know we all uh, learn in Econ One, a sort of neoclassical model that says, you know, if we make some technical assumptions and you know markets markets clear, then everyone is well, at least it's efficient. Maybe not everyone's happy. Maybe there's you know some distributional issues, but like it it works really well, and we can kind of you know don't don't mess with it unless there's externalities or you know, pollution things like that. Yeah, so so um, you know the title of my book was discovering prices, and and what you've just described is uh, what can happen if prices uh, are discovered. If we know 
uh, what the prices are for things, then people can survey the uh, items and survey the prices that are out there and buy what they want. Um, in the kinds of auctions we're talking about, many of the items that are being sold are unique. You're buying a radio spectrum license that covers Northern California in one of the early examples, and there's only two of them. And uh, you don't know what the price is. And by the time you know what the price is, the uh, transaction is made and the items aren't available anymore. So uh, the standard theory um, that you learn in Econ 1 that says, you know, if you buy a, a, a loaf of bread, uh, here's how much it costs. And now you can decide how many loaf of, loaves of bread to buy. Well, that's fine when there are lots of loaves of bread and you're buying them every day. But when there's a unique item that you're buying only once, you don't know the prices and, and you can't make decisions that way. <clears throat> okay. Well, so let's, to make this more concrete, let's, let's plunge into the, um, the specific example that you talk a lot about in your book um, with the uh, FCC's incentive auction. So, uh, and there's a lot of uh, background to even understand what, what was for sale and why. So, so what, what was this? I, I know you've been involved with several different uh, spectrum auctions, but, but we'll focus just on, on this one that you did relatively recently um, or helped with. And uh, so what was, the, what, was the, what was being auctioned? Why did it need an auction? Um, and what were some of the challenges you faced? Well, you, you have um, just isolated for discussion what might be the most complicated auction in history. So uh, I'll go ahead. <laughs> okay, and well, maybe it. if there's a simpler one you want to start with to illustrate some points, that'd be okay too. Well, I, you know, I think you know we might as well dive in, and I will try to uh, add the points gradually uh, to it. So, uh, first of all, you know, what is radio spectrum? Why is it uh, sold? So, the, there are frequencies that um, uh, you can use to communicate. Um, you know, your whether it's baby monitors or Wi-Fi or a garage door opener or or your cell phone, uh, they all use uh, portions of the radio spectrum to um, carry information. And um, the, the most intensive uses are a wireless data that's used, you know, for example, by your cell phones. Um, and another relatively intensive use is television broadcast. And, and what was going on when the incentive auction took place is television broadcast was becoming less important. You know, if your, your listeners all know that in the, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that most of the way people watch television was over-the-air broadcast. But by uh, the modern era, we've reached the point where uh, very little television is watched over the air. You have cable, you have satellite, you have uh, the internet that you use to watch shows. And you um, uh, and there's less need for radio spectrum to carry uh, television signals over the air. We've also gotten better at it. The early signals were analog the new signals are digital and they're much more compact. We don't need as much spectrum for television broadcast. Meanwhile, um, since the invention of the iPhone, the introduction of the iPhone around 2007, uh, there's been a lot more wireless data. People are carrying these phones around doing data intensive things all the time. So the government wanted to arrange to move some of this capacity of the radio spectrum that had been used for television broadcast over to um, mobile broadband, and uh, that was the uh, that was the resource allocation problem. And it's complicated for uh, several reasons. What made it really unusual compared to other auctions were, um, well, there's a lot of things, but two big ones. Um, 
one big one was that in contrast to previous auctions, we didn't know how much spectrum we were going to be selling to the mobile broadband companies. It depended on uh, what prices the television stations would charge to give up their own license rights. So um, the quantity wasn't fixed in advance, and we didn't just say we're selling uh, a certain quantity of spectrum. We had to figure that out in the auction. And so in the, to jump back, just in, in previous uh, spectrum auctions, uh, was there where did the spectrum come from? You didn't have to buy it from someone who was already using it. It was just uh, available, and they, they sold it off? <laughs> That's right. There were new uses. What, what happened is with advancing technology, uh, new frequencies became feasible to use. So higher frequencies would originally early radio and television used very low frequencies. And uh, that was all the technology allowed us to communicate with. But then higher frequencies uh, became available. And sometimes uh, frequencies became available because government uses ceased. There used to be, uh, you know, uh, more uh, spectrum used for radar, for example, that was set, set aside for the... Um, uh, for the government to do, you know, ship-to-shore radar, long-distance radar, and those things uh, uh, stopped, uh, fell out of use. So, yeah, most of the spectrum was unused uh, in the past, and uh, this was one of the first big auctions, in fact, the first big auction in the U.S. that involved reassigning spectrum, that is deciding how much to take out of use and move to a new use. So that kind of puts the the government in the position of being a, a sort of middleman or or market maker as opposed to uh, just you know uh, reallocating. Uh, why, why does the government need to be involved in this case at all? Couldn't you you know imagine that this television stations, if they have the right, you know, if they already own a, a chunk of spectrum, couldn't they just sell it off to uh, whoever whoever wants to use it? So uh, let me start with an analogy that will help uh, your listeners understand that a little better. It, it, it's a little bit like urban redevelopment. I mean, imagine you have a downtown area and you've got uh, um, a lot of uh, not very valuable properties and, and you want to uh, reassign them. You want to raise all the individual houses, for example, in some area, blighted area of Detroit or something, and, and build a, a new project there. Um, the, an, an individual house is of no particular use to a developer who wants to uh, uh, develop a large project. They, you need to coordinate the sale of many such houses. And, uh, and you always have a problem in those, uh, what's called the holdout problem. You know, if I'm trying to uh, um, acquire all the properties in a particular block and uh, one homeowner doesn't want to sell and holds out for an outrageously high price, uh, they have a lot of power to block the project, and uh, individual homeowners have an incentive to do that if the project is valuable, and uh, it prevents this um, uh, these transactions from taking place. So in, in urban redevelopment, too, there's usually redevelopment agencies. Sometimes eminent domain is used where uh, uh, people are forced to sell um, to uh, to enable a project to move forward, and um, so, and that kind of thing is true on, in radio spectrum too, because television broadcast um, rights are not much use to a mobile broadband company. Uh, they're a different kind of right, and they need to be reconfigured and recombined so they can be used for mobile broadband. Television uses uh, very high-powered signals from a single uh, uh, station at a uh, at a single location. And uh, mobile broadband uses lots of low-powered signals you carry around your telephone, and you generate um, 
uh, a signal that carries your voice or data from wherever you happen to be in some geographic area. Um, and the, the engineering of the system is completely different. And the kinds of rights that you need in order to uh, to make that use are, are, are completely different. So it, it's, a, it's a redevelopment project similar to redeveloping land. So kind of like, uh, to, to take a stab at another metaphor, if it's that they're using the same spectrum. So it's kind of like, we had a freeway or, a, or maybe, maybe, maybe a better analogy would be like a railway, like centralized owned by one person who was just trains going one way or the other. And now we're going to replace that railway with sort of a lot of little roads and paths and byways for all the individual kind of cell phone users. That- yeah. And, and, um, if, and again, the, the, um, suppose you had two railways again, the, the, the problem here is we have lots of television stations there are about 3000 in North America. And um, they all had different rights, and we didn't want to buy all of them. Uh, but, you know, if, if you had two railways and you wanted a road crossing, uh, you need permission from both railways to, uh, to get your road <clears throat> to cross, and you need to coordinate with uh, both of them. Um, it's, it's not just a matter of buying one and having um, half of the service. You need to, you absolutely need to coordinate with both. You don't want a train running into a car. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the, uh, the, there are engineering requirements that are different for the, um, uh, for the two kinds of uses. Okay, so you want to get all of these uh, different, you don't know which, but a bunch of different television stations around the country uh, to, to offer up their rights and then kind of figure out which ones will really be useful and then uh, kind of repackage them and, and reor- re- reorganize them to, uh, to make a, a useful um, bandwidth that can be sold to the uh, telecom companies. Um, well, so, well, if I can interrupt you there, yeah. the figuring out which ones can be useful, there, there are many different combinations that could be useful. Uh, the, the problem is that they have different values. Some of them, uh, you know, are, uh, um, are very valuable to the uh, current broadcaster. They're in a, a an area where they have a, a valuable business and others are not very valuable. And what you'd like to do is take the low value uh, uh, TV stations uh, and take them off the air, the ones that are. Uh, uh, so, for example, um, some television stations that do Spanish language programming, for example, um, they find that many more of their customers listen uh, to over the air. They have uh, fewer of their customers that use um, cable and satellite, and they might find an over-the-air uh, uh, broadcast channel to be more valuable than somebody who does, you know, who shows uh, oh, a, a second weather channel in a particular um, city um, that uh, broadcasts in English and people who are going to watch it or will watch it uh, on cable or satellite. So the, the, val- the values are different, and we need to take into account the bids that the stations make and figure out which combination of them to accept. And then we need to take the, uh, the stations that didn't sell their rights, and this was also part of the process, and move them into a smaller collection of channels so that the other channels are freed completely. So we ended up um, at channels 38 to 51, uh, ended up being taken out of over-the-air broadcast, and everybody who didn't sell and was previously located on channels 38 to 41 was then moved uh, down into a lower frequency, say you might be moved from channel 42 to channel 
28th, uh, and uh, and continue your over-the-air broadcast there. So it was uh, that kind of combination, uh, that uh, that kind of procurement, that made this uh, complicated on on that side. Does that impose costs on the on the TV station, or do they just have to flip a switch on their on their broadcasting equipment to hit a different no, frequency? It, it does impose costs, and part of the um, part of the legislation that enabled this said the government had to reimburse those costs. So this is got, the TV stations had to be retuned, as they're called. That is moved to a different broadcast channel, and um, the cost of doing that was reimbursed by the government. Now I might add that for everybody who watches uh, uh, who watches their television on satellite or cable, it doesn't really matter uh, what uh, channel is being used for over-the-air broadcast because the mm-hmm. the uh, uh, you will continue to see the same stations on the same channels um, for, for over-the-air broadcast. And even for those who are watching, um, and, and all television is digital these days, even if you're uh, watching an over-the-air broadcast and the station is actually using uh, channel 28, it might still be tuned in on channel 42 on your television because the, the station is merely telling your television digitally, um, I'm channel 42, that's where you should show me to the um, uh, to the consumer. Okay, so you don't need, so you don't have to worry about losing consumers who think that their channel disappeared because it'll just appear as the same, even if they're tuning in remotely. They, I mean, I guess maybe they have a really old TV and they actually have to like personally turn a click to like channel twenty eight versus forty five. Then, then maybe they'd lose it. But but with most modern TVs, that wouldn't be it would not be an issue. No, well, it's it's even better than that actually, Peter, because. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the really old TVs, which use the analog technology, we don't have any broadcast on analog. There aren't any over the air okay. It's all digital now. And so the only televisions that work these days are digital, and they all work by uh, uh, getting information in the signal about uh, what the signal is, and they show it appropriately. So, so all televisions that work, work this way. Okay. I guess I haven't been rummaging in junkyards for old televisions. I didn't realize they wouldn't work at all anymore. But uh, that does make things uh, easier for the spectrum reallocation uh, problem. Um, okay, so you've you're buying um, you're buying the uh, the rights, and then you're going to resell them. I understand that you that they uh, decided not to do these auctions at the same time um, to to keep things simpler. Um, but if you're if you're selling, what part of your decision in selling? It's not just you know how. How much do I need my spectrum? You know, if I've got like Spanish language station that uh, is being broadcast mainly over the air, so I value that more. But also, part of it is like, how much am I? You know, how much is someone else going to want my station for? And so maybe I'd want to. Ideally, I'd like to see what bids are going out there, so I don't like, I don't know, accidentally sell my rights to someone for for cheap, and then have them and then have them resell them to the government or or onward, and and make a whole bunch of money that I'd feel bad about missing out on. How do you address so, that kind of concern? Yeah, so that's not, actually not right, um, Peter. Okay. So, so the problem that I'm you're here describing, to be not right, so you can correct me. <laughs> I just hope I'm not right in the same way other people might be, so it's useful for them to hear as well. Yeah. Well, so if, if you were bargaining with somebody, that would be the way it was. If if it was um, if you were selling your station to AT and T, um, and AT and T had any use for your TV station, that would make sense. But this is more like you're selling your station to the government. Um, it's, it's more like you're, you're, you are uh, making the sale 
to the government, and then the government is deciding, okay, which combination of stations do I want? And you're competing against others because uh, I'm going to uh, clear spectrum in the way that's cheapest. So here's how it looks to you. If you're, um, suppose that, you know, your grandfather, uh, you know, founded a TV station in, in your hometown um, in, you know, 1958, and uh, it's you have a station that's been in the family uh uh, since then, and you've built a business that's worth several million dollars to you. Um, suppose you have a station that's worth, uh, let's call it $5 million, just to make up a number. And, uh, and the way the auction looks to you is like this. The, uh, the government says, well, if we could pay you uh, $30 million, would you take it? And um, they, that's how it looks to you. And other prices are offered to other stations, depending on certain characteristics of the stations. And you say yes or no. And if you say no, the auction is over for you. Uh, you keep your station and, and continue to broadcast uh, over the air. And if you say yes, then uh, the, um, the government looks around and it says, well, you know, I got more offers than I needed, so I'm going to reduce uh, the price. Would you take $28 million? And um, if you say yes again, this time, if you're lucky, the government might say, you know what, I didn't get as many offers as I hoped. I need your station. You get $28 million. I'm buying your station. Um, so that's how the auction looks to you. And uh, it, 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 this makes it really straightforward from the, this was by design. This makes it very straightforward from the point of view of the TV station owner. You have a station that's worth $5 million to you. The government's offered $28 million, uh, potentially offered $28 million. If you say no, you mean the, the negotiation's over. You keep your station. If you say yes, you might get $28 million or, you know, you might uh, get another offer. But clearly you're better off saying yes. So it's really easy for you. Uh, as long as the price that's being offered is more than your value, you should keep saying yes. And... Um, as soon as the price that's being offered is less than your value, you should say no. And uh, the, the idea was to make it really easy for the TV broadcasters uh, to participate. And by the way, that was a, a very important design consideration for us when we were building this auction. We really wanted to make it easy so that bidders would participate because there, there's nothing more important uh, for a successful auction than actually getting the bidders to participate. And, and uh uh, this this was potentially a very complex auction. We, we wanted to make it easy for the uh, small bidders. So so it sounds like you're saying that maybe there there might have been a theoretically more optimal format that you could have chosen, but this one had the virtue of making sure that people would actually get it and feel comfortable uh, jumping in. Well, it's not clear what would have been theoretically more optimal. Uh, what others had proposed included just making bids. So the you have a $5 million station and somebody asks you to bid and you say, well, what, what price should I bid? I'm going to bid, you know, $12 million and, um, and see, and, and then if they buy my station, they'll have to pay $12 million. But then you have exactly the problem you've described. What price should I name? I'm not really sure how much I can get. I don't want to go in low. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I don't want to bid less than I could get. I don't want to bid uh, too high so that I lose out when I could have had a good deal. What should I do? It, it's really hard to bid in a uh, in a simple uh, 
you know, auction which you're paid as your bid. And it's even harder in this auction because the conditions under which you win are so complicated. They depend on the government saying, well, you know, I could take this station in Chicago and that station in Minneapolis and then reassign everybody around that area and that would work. Or I could take, um, you know, a certain station in uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin and a station in Joliet um, and it depends on the combinations of prices and what everybody bids. It's uh, it, it would be a remarkably hard problem for bidders if they had to figure out uh, what price to offer. And so what we designed was an auction that was designed to make it easy for bidders. Um, very straightforward. You just go in there and you just listen to the offers that are made to you. And when they become unacceptable, you say no. Uh, meanwhile, you keep your hopes up and maybe you're going to get... Um, uh, um, quite a large pad. You know, in, in, in the San Francisco area here where we are, um, the KQED had um, three broadcast um, uh, towers, and uh, they discovered that by retuning them, they could serve essentially the same population using just two towers, and they were able to get $95 million uh, for, um, for, for selling their third tower because Spectrum in the Bay Area is, is very valuable. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and they were able to get $95 million, and I think it cost them 2 or $3 million uh, to do the retuning of their other two towers. So they made a nice, hefty contribution to their endowment um, by participating in this auction. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm a lifelong KQED fan, so uh, always always happy to hear that they uh, they got a good deal out of this. Um, so, okay, so that was the, the auction, uh, the, the, per, part, the first step of buying from the uh, – um, from the, the current users. And so what were some of the challenges with uh, selling it onward to uh, the different potential um, new users of the spectrum? Well, again, the, the, the other big challenge that was really novel is that we didn't know how much spectrum we were going to be transacting. So mm-hmm. depending on the prices that the, um, uh, that the television broadcasters were um, you know, offering, and depending on the demands that we were getting from the mobile broadband companies, we had to uh, determine what the quantity would be. And this is different from, and you, you, you might think that this also is textbook econ one. You have supply and you have demand and you look at where the supply and demand curves cross. But the econ one textbook considers the situation where there's just one homogeneous commodity being sold. I'm mean, selling corn. And I have a demand for corn and a supply for corn, and I end up with the price of corn. Here, the uh, situation is quite different because every television broadcaster uh, is contributing in a different way. It's uh, if I buy, you know, KQED, I get a particular broadcast license in a particular area in San Francisco, um, and I can combine that with other licenses in a particular way. And KQED may have a unique price that's different from all of the other prices because it's offering a, a different combination of resources. So um, determining the quantity was not just a matter of, um, you know, here's, here's the quantity, uh, here's uh, uh, how many stations are offering. Uh, the stations differ in their location. Uh, they differ in their, uh, the interference that they are uh, creating in the spectrum. And I need to buy the right combinations or, or a suitable combination in order to clear spectrum. So, so determining cost of a, a particular quantity of spectrum was complicated. 
and then determining the demand on the other side, if I had channels 38 to 51 cleared, which is what we actually did in the auction, um, then the uh, I would be selling licenses to San Francisco and Chicago and New York and Los Angeles and Boston, and I needed to add up the prices I was getting for all of those things to determine how much revenue would be coming out of the sale, and I'd have to compare it to the cost of the procurement of television stations and uh, uh, and try to get a quantity where the um, the total revenue that I was collecting was sufficiently larger than the total cost that I was incurring in order to pay the cost of retuning the remaining stations, which I've already described to you, had to be paid uh, uh, from the auction proceeds by the government. So it was a you know historically complicated um, resource allocation problem. So, so did you have bids from the uh, the? I, I thought there was the forward auction, the backward auction. I forget if that was the phrasing. Were, were kept separate, so you would, didn't actually have as much information about the demand until you already sort of had the supply. How did you how did you reconcile that, or, or am I misremembering? Well, so you you are remembering halfway correctly, uh, Peter. Okay. Um, so what we the way we actually ran the auction is we uh, set a target quantity. So say um, we wanted to clear um, uh, eighty four megahertz of spectrum in some round of the auction. So um, uh, that's uh, um, that's fourteen channels, and uh, so then we would run the reverse auction. And um, actually, we started with a larger amount. We started with 126 megahertz of spectrum, which is 21 channels. And we said, what would it cost us to clear 21 channels? And we ran the reverse auction. Then we went to the forward auction and said, well, if we had that much spectrum available, what revenue could we uh, raise? And um, it turned out that for 126 megahertz, the, the cost of acquiring that spectrum would have been about $85 billion dollars. And when we ran the forward auction, the revenue we would have gotten would have been about $22 billion, not even close, mm-hmm. very far short. So I said, oops, that's more spectrum than we can afford to clear. So then we reduced the, um, uh, the clearing target uh, to 114 megahertz, a smaller number of channels. And then we continued to reduce the price and said, well, we don't need to buy as many uh, TV stations as uh, we thought. So, uh, uh, so we can reduce the prices and have uh, more bidders exit, and then we determined uh, the new price for clearing the smaller amount of spectrum, and then went back to the forward auction and said, well, we don't have as many licenses available as we'd hoped to sell, so we still have excess demand now at our prices, so we raised the prices in the forward auction, and we went back and forth um, uh, running the reverse auction and the forward auction separately. We would lower the prices in the uh, forward auction at each round um, until we uh, had just enough uh, broadcasters selling to clear that amount of spectrum. And then we would raise the prices in the forward auction at each round until we had uh, the demand falling to match the supply. And we did that until we had uh, prices in the forward auction that were sufficiently higher in total than the total prices in the reverse auction. That was our... um, our new market algorithm, which is also a brand new thing, by the way. There's, this has never been done before in quite this way. Yeah. So, so why don't we talk about that a little bit? Um, you, uh, you know, as you mentioned, like the, the sort of intuition of what you're describing kind of fits with, you know, 
again, the supply and demand curve and kind of imagine if you overshoot one direction or the other, you keep adjusting prices till things balance. But your point is that there's so many different, uh, you know, unique products and their, their values are, are interrelated in such complex ways that, uh, that can be challenging for the, the market maker and for the, uh, buyers to figure out what everything should be worth and how much to bid. And so, um, I think you've worked with, uh, with computer scientists on this, uh, this problem to sort of resolve it computationally. Is that right? What, what are the kinds of uh, new things that, um, that you're doing in that area? Okay, well, that brings us back to um, where we were before when we were talking about the combinations. So um, in the end of it, in the actual auction, at the end, we had uh, channels 13 to 36, um, or rather 14 to 36 being uh, uh, continued to use for uh, UHF over-the-air broadcast. And we had to fit the uh, stations we didn't buy, um, assign them in, into um, that set of channels. And it turns out, Figuring out whether there is a way to do that is uh, what's called an NP-complete problem. That is, it's hard even for computers um, when the problem is done at scale. And uh, this problem was at scale. There aren't any algorithms that are guaranteed to be able to identify uh, whether or not there is a way to um, to fit a given set of broadcasters into a given set of channels. Now, this doesn't mean that we always fail. It means that... Uh, some of these problems are too hard for uh, the computers. So we had um, oh, roughly 2,000 uh, television stations that we're looking at uh, at reassigning. And um, it's, it's sort of like solving a large-scale Sudoku problem, if you will, if you're, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're depending on uh, what number you put in one box, it affects the numbers you can put in all the other boxes. Well, that's the same kind of problem we had. Um, in, in figuring out which combinations of stations we could buy. That's, uh, so that was computationally very hard. And it was exciting. We created some new algorithms to do this. Uh, we, we don't have to solve all problems. We only needed to do this for the particular uh, Sudoku, if you will, the particular arrangement of, of, um, uh, of radio spectrum in the United States, of television broadcast in, in the United States and Canada. And so uh, what we were able to do was run, you know, millions of simulations um, testing uh, different algorithms and tweaks of algorithms to see which ones could solve these problems fast. So we had a test laboratory and we were using a, basically a machine learning algorithm to experiment and uh, learn how to tweak parameters of the algorithm so that we could do these calculations quickly. So all of that was done in the background um, uh, to prepare uh, for the uh, for the auction that we ran, yeah, I worked with Kevin Leighton Brown. Um, uh, most of this work was done by Kevin at, uh, and his team at the University of British Columbia. Fascinating. So it's, it's definitely very different from you know the way that I learned economic theory was was all about you know we want something we can precisely nail down for you know some general set of parameters, and if we if we don't have that and I mean, I feel like I was trained that, you know, if you just kind of throw a bunch of numbers in a bucket and like get some answer out that doesn't apply for all possible values of all possible variables or for some well-defined subset, then you kind of haven't done real work or it doesn't, it didn't really count. So, so, um, yeah. So, so tell me about that. How, how did, how has your thinking evolved about around that? And, and when is, when is one the right approach and when is the other? So there, there is a, a whole burgeoning field now um, 
that's uh, since you've been in graduate school, Peter, the econ and CS were where um, uh, the computer scientists um, originally, and you know, and operations researchers before them were working on algorithms to solve hard problems. Some of these problems are so hard that uh, even computers can't solve them most of the time. They're uh, extremely complex, complex combinatorial problems. And um, the computer scientists started adding the issue of incentives that is saying, well, if we have to, you know, allocate machine time, for example, but different people own the different machines, we need them to tell us about the uh, capabilities of their machines. How can we uh, get them to do that truthfully? Um, and, uh, but, and, and how can we get them to do that truthfully, given that we can't optimize? So uh, economists had developed the Vickery clark growth mechanism to say, you know, if we have to ask people to tell us their values, um, we know how to arrange their compensation so they'll report truthfully and we can then optimize. But suppose optimization is impossible because the problems are too hard. Uh, what can you do then? And um, the example that I gave you was an example, the, the spectrum auction description was an example of just that. The, the, um, it's going to be in your interest if you have a station that's worth $5 million. Uh, it's going to be in your interest to bid truthfully in the auction that I designed uh, or that my team, that auctionomics uh, uh, designed. Um, and I think it's obvious to you that, uh, uh, that if you have a station worth $5 million and I offer 28, uh, if you say no, you, nothing's going to happen. You keep your station. If you say yes, you might get more than your station value. So it's going to be in your interest to play truthfully. And this is an example of an algorithm that um, makes it in the participants' interests um, to report truthfully, but doesn't calculate the optimum. Instead, it calculates um, something else, which, you know, we showed computationally was a pretty decent approximation of the optimum, uh, even if we uh, can't calculate the optimum exactly. Okay. So, um, so we're running low on time. So let me, let me ask you, um, so you, we've talked a lot about the, um, uh, spectrum auctions and I know that's been a big part of, um, kind of applied large scale, um, auction theory, um, out there. Uh, but you, and you mentioned you have a, a consulting firm auctionomics on the, on the side that, um, works on these, what, what other kinds of, uh, aside from spectrum, what other kinds of, um, businesses, uh, have a need for this kind of, uh, consulting? Well, you know, um, just a few weeks ago, uh, we also we made a, a proposal to the government of Chile for um, how to sell fishing rights. By the mm. way, the auction I just described to you is probably the most complicated resource allocation problem in history to, to use uh, an auction design. So the rest of these are simpler than that, but mm -hmm. more complicated than what Sotheby's and eBay do. Right. Um, so... Uh, we made a, a relatively simple proposal to improve uh, the allocation of fishing rights and raise more revenue for the Chilean government. And uh, uh, that also had the objective of reducing concentration in the Chilean fishing industry. So the, we had multiple objectives um, and uh, we made a proposal for them. My team is currently looking at uh, some questions about water rights uh, there are electricity auctions uh, uh, that we've been looking at that where the uh, electrical power is bought and sold. And again, electrical power is not a homogeneous thing. If you flip on your switch 
at uh, 10 o'clock, it doesn't do you any good to have a generator that's running at 10.05. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you need it when you need it. So the um, so these are examples of markets that have some measure of complexity. In, in Chile, the um, uh, fish fishing rights, well, the fish differ by species, um, and uh, the species have, uh, uh, if you're trying to uh, preserve uh, if you're interested in the, in the preserving fish species, you have to limit the catch individually for each species, but the fish get caught together because they swim together sometimes and they swim in different areas. So you have to uh, distinguish by species and distinguish by area. There, there are levels of complexity that uh, we need to take into account in, um, in assigning these things to get good outcomes and uh, designing an auction to do that is um, well, we made a proposal for, for fisheries, and we're going to uh, work on uh, making proposals for water rights as well. That's great. It's really exciting to hear that uh, work like this is you know, not just applied to getting me better, uh, better 5G service in San Francisco, but also uh, you know, hopefully helping, uh, at least on the margins, uh, meet some, some environmental challenges. Um, and also a really nice uh, you know, illustration of kind of the, how, how market design sort of slots in between, you know, it's not the... It's not the kind of libertarian story of, well, you know, markets are great and any kind of planning will just get messed up because the planners can't have enough information. You know, you're, you're finding that, that the markets don't have enough information either. So it's a question of uh, kind of getting, getting the right system in place so that you can have the input from planning and from the goals maybe of, you know, social goals that, that may differ from individual goals and, and kind of reconcile all those, but still within the framework of a price system with all the sort of information that gets revealed through that, that price uh, seeking process. Yeah. And if, if, if I may add just a couple of words before we, we sign off here, Peter, mm-hmm. the, you know, in my book, I describe you know, several of those things and other forms of complexity, reasons why um, you, uh, you might want to, um, to centralize a market design. I mentioned, you know, the example of land rights in Georgia and the, uh, um, the, uh, air traffic control and, and a number of places where markets left to their own, um, uh, to their own wouldn't work well or haven't have failed in fact, where they've uh, not worked well and talked about why they didn't work well. It's where, where it's not enough to have uh, simple bilateral transactions to get to a good outcome where you need to, um, uh, to evaluate things at a system level and uh, and try to coordinate the outcomes while still taking into account individual values uh, so that you know some flights or some pieces of land are are, are more valuable than others so uh, it's uh, a market that's more complicated than the ones that uh, are described in econ 1 okay well that's that's yeah that's really incredible so yeah again i guess i'll, I'll uh, just remind people that the book is discovering prices auction design in markets with complex constraints and uh, uh, there's definitely some some very dense technical elements that uh, uh, only an economist could love, but uh, economists will love them. Um, and uh, uh, with that, I know you're, you're a busy man. Sounds like you've got an, sounds like you've got an incredible number of things going on. So I will uh, I will let you go. But thanks again very much. Okay. Well, thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure talking to you.